Dr. Fauci is all for the vaccine mandates. And should the United States accept Afghan refugees? All coming up next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Welcome back to Vince and Jason Save the Nation. If it's your first time here, welcome. Uh, you can make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can hear it every week, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share on the Daily Caller's YouTube page. That's how we make sure we reach that massive Google audience as well. <laughs> Jason Nichols, we've been watching the Sunday shows this weekend. What are yes, they talking sir. about? So, Dr. Fauci. Talking a little bit about vaccine mandates. Everybody is really concerned about this, particularly since uh, the, the Pfizer vaccine uh, has gotten approval uh, from the FDA. So we're going to watch what he said with Jake Tapper. Let's take a look. I know that you're hearing from doctors who think that the Biden administration, which has been very aggressive on this issue, but some people think that the Biden administration should be even more aggressive, mandating vaccines for all federal employees, mandating vaccines for anyone who gets on an airplane or, or a train. Um, what do you say to them? Well, Jake, I am very much in favor of mandating at the local level. I don't think we're going to see federal mandates except for certain agencies of the federal government. I mean, we've already seen that with the Veterans Administration. But now that we have the full approval, the full stamp of approval, at least for the Pfizer vaccine, we are definitely going to see mandating for colleges if you want to attend in person at a college or a university or places of business that employs large numbers of people. I think you're going to see that, and I actually encourage it because I think that's one of the ways that we can get many, many more people vaccinated. So, Vince, what do you think? Uh, I'm not surprised. He's been kind of on the uh, for vaccine mandates at the local level for a while now. This is the latest iteration of Dr. Fauci expressing that. I think the big thing that stands out to me and that continues to frustrate me is that they're not talking about natural immunity at all. That is the millions of American citizens and certainly uh, many more millions who've been infected worldwide and have since recovered from COVID. I think it is long overdue for us to have a rational conversation about this. Um, I've invoked uh, several times and talked about people like Dr. Marty McCary out of Johns Hopkins, Dr. Monica Gandhi over there on the West Coast, people who've been saying, look, natural immunity is real. It's really strong. And the government in its public health efforts should acknowledge it. I expect somebody like Dr. Fauci to talk about that out loud uh, and how protective it is. And the good news we got in the last week was that a uh, study out of Israel, uh, which is a preprint study, but is offer some very promising data, show that among the many, many, many thousands of Israelis who were being tracked in this study, um, that the people who had previous infection were faring better against the Delta variant than people who had the vaccine, uh, and that they were, they were much less likely to become infected. And in fact, the group that was the least likely to be infected out of all three groups was the, uh, was the group that was both previously infected and got one shot of the vaccine. They said they're the most protected out of any category. But natural immunity by itself is really strong. And it is super frustrating that our public health officials can't even begin to acknowledge that. And the reason, Jason, is because they're scared, I think, 
is they're scared that people are going to say to themselves, oh, well, I'll just take the risk. I'll get COVID. I mean, if the protection from the natural immunity is stronger, no, you can still say it's stronger, which is apparently the truth, while simultaneously saying you don't want to run the risk of catching it for fear of the negative consequences, which are vastly diminished by getting vaccinated. So still, you should get vaccinated. So the, these vaccine mandate conversations, Jason, are happening um, at the same time that they're not being forthcoming about a very important conversation, natural immunity. Well, certainly, I mean, that, that conversation needs to be had. I have to see the, the evidence uh, and the scholarship that you are referencing when you talk about natural immunity being stronger than, um, than vaccination, <clears throat> particularly if you uh, got the alpha strain and now you are subject to the to the Delta variant. We, you know, I have to see that evidence. I'm not necessarily calling into question, you know, what you're saying, but I, I'd certainly like to see it, and I'd sure. certainly like to see more than one study. Uh, we know that one study. There's one study that says that that eye drug. I'm not going to say it because I don't want <laughs> us to go down in the, you know, I don't want us to, uh, you know, lose our place in the algorithm. That's but right. that eye drug or, you know, some <laughs> of the other drugs, there's one study that comes out and then 50 studies disprove it. And, and then you have, you know, people who are going to, you know, calling uh, poison control because they're taking the drug. Yes. Um, and it's not recommended by the FDA or by, you know, serious medical professionals and scientists. Right, right. So uh, I, you know, I want to see that. Sure. Um, I do and I'm, think by that the way, and I'm, and I'm reliant. I, this is not just me. I, I, you know, I can't read the medical literature and like and assess it with like some sort of great accuracy. Obviously, I'm relying on experts in the field when I when I make statements like that. So I'm talking about, you know, Marty McCary, Monica Gandhi. I saw Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, uh, very encouraged by this data this past week. Uh, my only question, my only request is that we just have our public health officials acknowledge that it exists and then tell us why it's wrong if they think it's wrong. Right. Well, I think I think uh, people who have COVID and particularly or have gotten COVID and also people who have COVID um, now and are surviving and are not going to hospitals, they're they're usually not the the uh, group that we're most worried about. We're worried mm -hmm. about the people who are more vulnerable. And sometimes you may not know that you're vulnerable. And we've seen all of these people who have railed against vaccines and then they end up, you know, dying or getting very sick or ending up on a ventilator. And then we have a hurricane that comes in through a particular area. And then the ICU beds are all filled with people who didn't want to get the vaccine, thought the vaccine was harmful, got COVID, ended up in an ICU. And now those beds that would be so valuable right now are all filled up. So I think that that's, you know, part of the problem that a lot of people have. And, and when we talk about local or even, you know, things that are pretty much national vaccine mandates, this is not new. If your kids go to school, the reason they don't come home with the measles or the mumps is because they've been vaccinated. Right. So this idea of a vaccine mandate seems so strange and seems like it's out of left field. But what you don't know or what you don't recognize or, or won't or you're not willing to acknowledge is that you've always been subject to a vaccine mandate. That's the reason you didn't get the mumps or the measles or polio. It's, yeah, much more. It's much more associated with schools, as you're noting. And, you know, a lot of like routine jobs don't typically require you to show your your vaccination records in order to get it. It's, it's an unusual thing. Uh, now, corporate America is adopting it in this case. 
but you're right. It's like schools, especially they have shot records and expectations and mandates. Um, but one interesting component here that goes back to my argument from a moment ago is, you know, with uh, uh, chicken pox, if you've had chicken pox, you don't get the vaccine. You don't need it because you've had chicken pox. Right. Um, and I just think that if we're going to have an intelligent conversation around COVID, one of the ways to do that would be to acknowledge, okay, what's the role that natural immunity plays? And do those people need to endure a yeah, mandate I, to get vaccinated? I agree 100% that, you know, that should be part of the discourse. That should be part of the discussion. My only thing is, again, and you pointed it out, is that some guy who got a cold thinks, oh, I already got COVID and didn't get COVID. <laughs> you know, he got, he got the right. common cold or he got right. the flu. And so he's like, no, I'm immune. Uh, there's somebody that we both know you know, a guy who's a surfer, bro, uh, that we both know that claims, oh, I definitely got COVID, you know, but never <laughs> got tested for it. So I, uh -huh. I think, again, shout out to that guy. He knows I love him. Um, uh -huh. but, but again, Pretty sure that guy's had way worse diseases, actually. Than COVID. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. he's, he's probably his immune system is probably pretty strong. Yeah, but those were venereal diseases. <laughs> this is a little bit different. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think it's, you know, it's really, um, you know, something where I think that there's a lot of danger because of the, you know, this has been so politicized. And if you listen to sure. what Dr. Fauci uh, has said, you know, um, Jake Tapper later in the interview asked him about the don't Fauci my Florida t-shirts where now Florida is going through a really difficult time with the Delta variant. And, you know, I, I think the, the point that he's trying to make is I'm just a scientist. I'm just trying to give you public health information. Right. Now, do you think that, you know, the discussion and the discourse and the conversation around COVID needs to be expanded? I, I'd be totally open for that. I think we should have a conversation about, you know, things like natural immunity. And if you got alpha, does that mean that you are going to be okay with Delta? Um, I think that's a conversation that, that I want to have. And I want to see the science behind it. And I want to see, you know, more studies. And I understand that there are certain uh, you know, public health professionals or physicians uh, who are going out and researchers uh, who are saying that this is a possibility. But I think in the interest of public health, we have to be very careful about possibilities because the eye drug had a possibility. The, you know, hydroxychloroquine had a possibility. And then a storm of studies came through and disproved uh, that those were, you know, effective against COVID-19. So um, I think we have to be careful about, you know, the, the one-off studies that some people are citing and really listen to the real professionals. And like I said, vaccine mandates are not new. Um, and I think it's important for when we're dealing with a pandemic like none of us have ever dealt with in our lifetime, vaccine mandates in certain settings, particularly things like hospitals, I think are really important. Um, and they're going to keep people health, we, healthy. Mm. We want uh, hospitals where people, you know, where it's as, as sterile an environment as possible. And so having our doctors, our nurses vaccine, uh, vaccinated, I think is pretty important. Right on. Now, you know, there, there's uh, also, of course, we need to talk uh, a little bit about Afghanistan, of course. You know, that's that's been something that lots of people are discussing because it's a real issue. Now, one of the things that's going on right now is uh, on Fox News, 
uh, Maria Bartiromo had Stephen Miller on to talk about the possibility of bringing these Afghan refugees, many Afghan refugees who helped the United States are gaining entry into our country and being resettled in the United States of America. Many uh, communities around the United States, red and blue, black and white, are very accepting of these refugees because they feel that, they, that the United States of America owes them a debt. Stephen Miller, surprise, surprise, thinks differently. So uh, let's take a look at what Stephen Miller said, and then I'm going to get your reaction, Vince. Yeah, well, look, this is a double Biden disaster. First, as you mentioned, and as we discussed, he got rid of the Trump plan, the Trump conditions base plan. And now Afghanistan's a terror wonderland once again, with terrorists just roaming around doing whatever they want to do. But the second part of this disaster is now he's opening our border to Afghanistan. Have we forgotten so quickly that the 9-11 terrorists were granted visas by our State Department? Have we forgotten so quickly that all that blood was shed because we weren't able to secure our own immigration system? Now we're going to repeat these mistakes again? The United States has no obligation, none at all, to say every person in the world who's living under Islamic theocracy has a right to come to our country. When did that become the mission? How many people does that apply to? How is that safe for us? How's that good for the Muslim world? If there are people who want to leave the Taliban because they don't want to live under Islamic Sharia law, if that's the reason they want to leave, then we can work with them to find a home somewhere else in the Middle East. But this open-ended obligation to take out every one of the 40 million people who would prefer to live here than under Sharia law is clinically insane. And we will rue the day that we made that decision. So I hope members of Congress will speak up before it is too late. Stephen, thank you so much for weighing in on all of this. We are going to get right to Congress right now. We want accountability and we appreciate it. All right, Vince, what do you think about Stephen Miller? Well, I don't think you necessarily have to like Stephen Miller to say that at least some element of the questions he's raising are good. How do we vet people who are coming to the country? And what is the limit of our generosity, right? So what is the outer limit? Not a lot of conversations typically about that point. Um, I think most of the conversations among both Republicans and Democrats who've spoken out about this have been about, we need to be generous, we need to bring people in, we need to have Afghan refugees. And there is some broad consensus, especially on the interpreters, right? So we often hear about these special immigrant visas, these SIVs that we're extending to Afghans. Uh, and the number of Afghans who are expected to come into the country, according to the United States military, which is housing, uh, trying to house many of them right away, is in the vicinity of 50,000. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that she'd like it to be closer to at least 200,000. She thinks our obligation should be much higher. But the idea, the translator section, the interpreter section, these are the guys who are standing there in combat with our guys, who put their lives on the line, who were very much vilified by the Taliban for working so intimately with our troops. That category of... SIV is a very narrow category, actually. There's a much broader group of people who are who are otherwise coming to the United States. And they're the types of people who maybe did food service or something for some American contractor or even, you know, carried garbage for American contractors who were in Afghanistan. Did they help Americans? Yeah. But I think that there are shade, there are dramatic shades of difference between somebody who's earning a paycheck working uh, in, in Afghanistan and somebody who's in the battlefield interpreting on, our, on behalf of our troops. And I think it's okay for us to delineate. 
And the, the final thing I'll say on, on uh, vetting, which is, um, I think, a pretty difficult, very difficult thing to do in a country that really has very few paper trails, Afghanistan, uh, not a lot of easy ways to vet somebody in order to establish whether or not they'll be safe within our country to American citizens, which is still an important question. Um, I look back at Iraqi refugees because that's the most recent example of a refugee program that we can reflect on. And just this year, the Biden State Department in, um, in June had uh, said that they had found that there was at least 4,000 fraudulent cases of Iraqi refugees in the country and they were beginning an investigation into well over 100,000 more to establish whether or not those cases were fraudulent. So in other words, there's a history of fraudulence in refugee programs where you have people who are looking to take advantage of that opportunity, even if they don't actually qualify for that status within the United States. And so we should be careful and be on guard for those very things. <clears throat> I don't think anybody's going to argue against vetting. Uh, I agree with you. Now, I'll say this. Um, you know, Stephen Miller, it, it's hard for me to talk about anything Stephen Miller says without talking about Stephen Miller himself. And I, I can tell you that I would trade 50,000 stray dogs in the streets of Kabul if the Afghans would take Stephen Miller. You know, if we could send him to the, you know, to Afghanistan, I'd take the stray dogs here to, in the United States. Uh, but I'll say this about, you know, Stephen Miller, number one, all, number, number two, you know, you'll never convince me that guy's in his 30s. I can't believe it. Nobody looks like that in their 30s. It's really a shame. But, but about what he said, again, I, one of the things that I'll say about, um, about uh, refugees, I really, you know, and, and I've been, you know, as I've said this a couple of times, and I keep going back and forth with it, is where is the resistance to the Taliban supposed to come from if we take out everyone who would otherwise resist the Taliban's rule? You know, and, and if, if we think that the Taliban is a cruel, oppressive group, you know, perhaps some of those people, instead of taking 100,000 people out of their ancestral homeland, maybe we should allow for them to challenge the Taliban to make demands of the Taliban, to make sure that there are concessions made for women and for other people. Um, taking all of them out, I think changes the complexion of the country, uh, the political you know, uh, outlook of the country and really seeds it to the Taliban. You know, it's, it's just one thing that, I, that I've kind of been thinking about. Now, mm -hmm. as far as, um, you know, the fraudulent cases and people taking advantage, you know, perhaps I, I think that that, of course, happens, you know, who wouldn't take advantage of that if you had the opportunity to come to a country that is economically stable? And should some other countries, you know, uh, take some of these Afghan refugees? I think so. You know, I, I think, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with them going to Great Britain or going to Australia or going to some other, you know, stable nations within the Middle East. I think all of that does make sense. Um, the only problem I have with what you said about um, the interpreters versus the guy who collected garbage, garbage or, or, you know, cleaned a latrine or did some other kind of work 
is then right. you start splitting people up by class. You know, the people who can interpret are people who are highly educated, who can speak English. And doesn't mean that they're any more devoted to the cause than probably the guy who threw the, the garbage away. Um, you also, you know, in terms of vetting, you also, you also have to be concerned about the family members, the extended family members who are coming with uh, many of the people who actually did the work. Maybe they do have different views or they, they view the United States differently. And yes. that is, you know, something to be concerned about. I get all of that. Um, my thing about Stephen Miller is I think Stephen Miller's concern is that he's a white nationalist. Um, and it's pretty clear, you know, he was best buds at, at Duke University with Richard Spencer, you know, and is that has, true? yeah, oh, yeah, they started a, a, a student group together. Um, and he gave white nationalist resources to Breitbart and, you know, was using like V-Dare and American Renaissance and using their white nationalist resources. And this woman who is a former white nationalist says, yeah, all the white nationalists know that Stephen Miller is a white nationalist. Um, and I'm not just tossing that term around. It's not like tossing around the term racist. Like this is what the white nationalist community thinks. These are the sources that he uses. And he was best buddies, you know, with a uh, pretty clear, you know, open white nationalist. Um, it's also true. It's also true that oftentimes there are um, extremists of all types who will claim someone who is not actually an extremist, right? Who will who will say that? Well, I'm voting for that guy. Like, right? Like, I'm pretty sure David Duke supported Joe Biden in the last election. Uh, and like, and I'm not sitting here thinking, oh, well, Joe Biden shares David Duke's ideology. You know what I mean? Yeah, he supported Trump. I know he did in 2016. I don't know about 2020, but I, I think know he. I think 2016. I think, uh, Whatever he was doing, I think he was like condemning Trump by the end of this and supported Biden. Anyway, the point is, I, I, you can't judge, I, I think, people purely on, on a basis like that. that. That's my recommendation. Yeah, I mean, well, I'll tell you, Republicans went after uh, Obama uh, because of his supposed association with Minister Farrakhan, you know, because he met Minister Farrakhan in Chicago, which... If you're black and prominent in Chicago, you've met Minister Farrakhan. That's pretty much how it works. You know, if you're politically prominent in, in Chicago. But, you know, I, I do think there's a difference between having met somebody, maybe even having shaken somebody's hand and starting a group with them. You know, I, I think that those are two very different things. Um, and of course, we know that Stephen Miller is also the architect of family separation. So. I, you know, the message, separating the message from the messenger, I, I think is a little bit difficult in this situation. Um, I think he has some white nationalist leanings at the very least and doesn't want to see a bunch of people, uh, brown people with different religious views and, and political views than him entering our country, even if they are deserving and bravely served our country in Afghanistan. And to me, that's that's troubling. But should we, you know, look at some of the other things that, that you discussed? Absolutely. Should people be vetted? Absolutely. Could they possibly go to other countries, which may even be a better fit for them? Absolutely. Those are all things that I think are fair. Should we maybe even discuss the idea of, you know, uh, is it possible for some people to be safe in Afghanistan and, and remain in Afghanistan and maybe be a political resistance in Afghanistan? 
I think all of those mm -hmm. things are worth a discussion. But when it's coming from Stephen Miller, it's pretty clear, in my opinion, where the motivation for his conversation comes from. And that's why I dismiss Stephen Miller. Now, where it coming from Vince Colonnais, I think it's, you know, it's a, some of these things are a worthwhile discussion to have. I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I don't think you're a white nationalist just yet. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We got to see. We got to see what groups you were part of in high school and college. <laughs> I think you'll be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. So, Vince, we got to talk a little bit about the Secretary of State Tony Blinken. He was uh, in an interview on, I believe, Meet the Press, mm -hmm. uh, and he spoke about. Uh, some of the things that are going on in Afghanistan, of course, he's being held to the fire by the media. Uh, let's take a look at some of the claims that are being made that information is being shared with the Taliban about the identities of American citizens and some Afghan allies of ours that could possibly put those people in danger. Given the Haqqani Network's ties to the Taliban, um, how can you be sure any list you share of Afghans who helped Americans won't be used for horrendous reasons by the Haqqani Network or others? Chuck, it's simply not the case. Uh, the idea that we've done anything uh, to put uh, at further risk those that we're trying to help leave the country is simply wrong. Uh, and the idea that we shared lists of, uh, of, uh, of Americans or others uh, with the Taliban is simply wrong. What was shared? And in specific, yeah. So in specific instances, when you're trying to get a bus or a group of people through, uh, and you need to show a manifest to do that, because it, particularly in cases where people don't have uh, the necessary credentials on them or documents on them, uh, then uh, you will, you, you'll share names of the list on people of bus so they can be assured that those are people that we're, uh, we're looking to bring in. And by definition, that's exactly what's happened. We've gotten uh, 5,500 American citizens uh, out of Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, to the extent that in, in an individual case yeah. with, a, with a particular group or a bus, uh, to verify that the people on the bus or in that group were people who uh, were supposed to come out, uh, American citizens, uh, especially, again, if they lacked the, uh, uh, the, the right document with them, uh, that's what we would do. But the idea that we put anyone in any further jeopardy is simply wrong. All right. Do you believe the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken? Well, I'm not actually sure what he's saying, because at the beginning of that clip, he said that we didn't share any lists. And then halfway through the clip, he said, yes, we've been sharing some names of uh, Afghan allies and Americans that were trying to get out of the country. He suggested that it was in limited circumstances. It kind of, it, in the end, it, it affirms the political report that this all was based on that Americans were share, sharing the names of um, the people who were trying to get out of the country with the Taliban. And it is, again, this, this very fraught environment where we have to trust the Taliban in order to get out of the country. So we're trusting the Taliban to handle the security perimeter. We're trusting the Taliban to make sure to let Americans through. We're trusting the Taliban to make sure that Af Afghans can get through. Um, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of sort of like turning over trust and apparent information to the Taliban, not to mention countless weapons systems uh, that are now in the possession of the Taliban as well. Um, boy, we cannot get out of that country fast enough. But it sounds to me, Jason, like the Secretary of State uh, in his own way just confirmed that, yes, we are handing over names of people to the Taliban. What else are we supposed to do? This is basically his argument. 
we've got to figure out ways to get people through. In order to do that, we've got to give them the names of who's clear and who's not. Yeah, I mean, that that's I, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, this is one place where I think we're going to agree. Um, I think the only place that, you know, I would disagree is that this is somehow uh, a bad thing. I mean, I think, you know, Tony Blinken's point is that this is what you have to do. This is how we're going to get them through. This is how they're going to get through safely. This is how we're not going to have impersonators come through, particularly if they lack certain documents. Um, you know, they've got to have certain information, you know, in order to get past enemy lines. And the Taliban has a vested interest in getting the right people through and allowing things to happen. Uh, I think that the United States still has an enormous amount of leverage over the Taliban. And that's something that I think a lot of Americans don't understand in this is they think we gave up all our leverage because all of our leverage was military. I don't think that that's necessarily true when the United States can can freeze your bank accounts, can do all kinds of you know cyber attacks and all kinds of damage uh, to the Taliban that they don't want. They want legitimacy. I, as I've said, I think the Taliban wants to be the new Saudi Arabia. You know, they they want to be uh, a nation that is included, that is thought of like Talib as excuse me, like Pakistan, where uh, you know people are kind of afraid of Pakistan because of, you know, the capabilities that they have, the capabilities of their military, and they are certainly developed in certain respects. Well, they have nuclear weapons. That's a, they certainly that's a, have that's a big game changer. Right. You know, of course, the Taliban won't have nukes. They're going to have a couple Humvees or something like that, whatever we left behind. But they're, they're not going to have nukes or anything like that. But they want to be included in the global community. They want to be seen as legitimate rulers of Afghanistan. So if we uh, have if we have this leverage, I think we though, have leverage. If we have this leverage, though, why are we letting August 31st be the deadline? Like, why not use that leverage to make sure we get every person out of that country we want for as long as it takes to do that? Well, so when I've listened to some of the officials who have spoken on this, some of them have said that they believe that, you know, August 31st is because we want to get Americans out. We don't want to leave people kind of just straggling along in the streets of Kabul or in other parts of Afghanistan. And we want to show that the United States, of course, lives up to its obligations and not that we are failing to get people out in the time that we allotted. To me, that would be a huge failure for the Biden administration if they couldn't get people out in that amount of time. But one of the things that I've heard a lot of officials say is that this is a soft deadline. This is not a hard deadline. There are going to be some people who are not going to come in time and we're eventually going to get them out and the Taliban is going to comply. Now, the question is, is, you know, ISIS Khorasan and all those other groups, are they going to make it difficult? And obviously that that's their intention. Um, but I think the Taliban is going to play ball up to a certain point until all U.S. assets uh, and I, I think most, if not all, U.S. citizens are out of Afghanistan. The Taliban is going to play ball with the United States because they want legitimacy. They don't want to be, they want to take Afghanistan into the 21st century and they see some of the changes that we've made in Afghanistan and they want to capitalize on those and be seen just like uh, some of the leadership in, in other countries 
that maybe we don't necessarily agree with their their way of life, uh, but and their their style uh, of rule, like China or Russia or you know to a certain extent Iran, like they don't want to be isolated. They want to be part of the global community, and there's so many fruits that come with that that they recognize. I don't think these guys are stupid. You know, Taliban actually means student. Um, so I think, you know, that's what they want. And to make, you know, a, a mistake by killing an American citizen, uh, I think they don't want that smoke. They want America out. They don't want to get hit with drone strikes and, and all the things that we're already seeing with ISIS-K. But uh, even they, if that's even if that's true at the top levels, and it's, and I'm not sure that it is. I mean, you got it, as you had Chuck Todd kind of reference in that uh, clip. You know, the Haqqani network, the Haqqanis are leading security for the Taliban uh, in the country. This is a deeply entwined terror organization. The Taliban deeply entwined with Al Qaeda in the first place. The distinctions are not as great, I think, as many in multiple administrations have attempted to make. Uh, I think the reason for that is because the U.S. has this policy of we don't negotiate with terrorist organizations. So there was always this heavy delineation between, well, the Taliban and Al Qaeda are separate, when in fact uh, their futures and their existence were, were very deeply intertwined. You've got the Pakistanis through their intelligence services uh, supporting the Taliban over these last two decades. A lot of that with U.S. money, we have American dollars that was that were flowing in in the form of aid to Pakistan, then flowing right into the Taliban, uh, which again armed the our, the Taliban, our enemy, which ended up killing American citizens. Uh, it is just this vicious uh, maelstrom that we've been involved in now for over two decades, and you and I have talked about that. I just think that this idea that maybe maybe one like some of the top leaders in the Taliban want crave what you're talking about some of this respect and some of this acceptance, but I'm not sure what kind of iron fist they wield over all of their foot soldiers. You know, as we're seeing story after story over these past this past week or so of American citizens being beaten down in the streets by Taliban fighters who refuse to let them through the lines, um, and there's like. You know, obviously, this this moment, you and I, hopefully, you know, within the next twenty four to forty eight hours, we we get good news. We get people out of the country, uh, and and it's a success. Hard to see how we reach it, including with members. You mentioned it before, even members of the Biden administration acknowledging, no, it's unlikely we're going to actually make that deadline to get everybody out. I just think there's a lot of trust in our battlefield enemy going on right now that is rightfully making Americans everywhere very nervous especially with the scenes we saw in Kabul this past week, where again, the Taliban saying, well, it wasn't our bomb, but ISIS-K able to get through that Taliban security line and to set off a devastating detonation. Uh, and we're apparently on the verge of doing it yet again um, over the weekend. So, and, is, I, and I think that's it's, exactly it's why thing. Tony Blinken is saying that we need some sort of uh, conversation with the Taliban about who can get through. Um, because let's just assume and take the Taliban at their word that it was somehow some sort of snafu or mistake or error that got that member of ISIS-K through. Um, we certainly want for them to be able to identify the right people and know, okay, you're on the list, you can get through. You're not on the list, no, mm. you can't. Um, so again, there is a certain amount of trust that goes into 
uh, working with the Taliban on this exit. But one of the things that, that I want to make clear, and again, you know, uh, there's trust that goes into the Trump administration actually negotiating with the Taliban in um, in February sure. uh, of, two, of 2020. There, there's all kinds of trust that we've been putting into the Taliban this entire time. And we've known that they were going to take over. So anybody who's like, oh, my God, the Taliban took over, you have to understand the Trump administration knew this. The Biden administration knew this. They just didn't know the speed with which they were going to do it. And, you know, it turned out that they did it very quickly. And ever since, you know, 2020, they've been planning for it. And they, you know, turns out that uh, about 18 months is just enough time for them to come in and just roll through and take over the country. Now that they have taken over the country, um, I think, you know, you have to work with them on some level. And again, one of the mistakes about this and the next clip we're going to go into, we're not going to show the entire thing, but it actually has Karl Rove coming in and, you know, criticizing the Biden administration, which is almost laughable because we would not be in this circumstance were it not for people like Karl Rove. But the next clip that, that I want to ask you about, of course, is Juan Williams. And, you know, Juan Williams has a lot to say about the situation in Afghanistan and the potential for terrorism uh, moving forward. So in, in the United States and on uh, U.S. soil. So let's take a look at that clip and, and I'll get your reaction. Over the last few weeks, the Taliban, as we gave up these prisons, was able to release thousands, according to the Pentagon, thousands of al Qaeda and uh, and ISIS-K prisoners. I mean, isn't just just realistic that Afghanistan is now going to become central headquarters for the Islamic jihadist movement? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Biden's critics, and I think it's, there's certainly a realistic look at it, just like you described it, Chris. There's a potential for a terror threat now, not only across the globe, but specific to us here in the United States, uh, coming from terrorists who are based in Afghanistan once again. But I think it's important to put this in some context. This is not the terror threat we faced on 9-11. Uh, this is very different. I mean, you stop and think about it. The differences include, one, the element of surprise is gone. Two, we have a Department of Homeland Security and intelligence networks with our allies that are aimed at terrorists and specifically now at Afghanistan. And also, you have to keep in mind, the terror threat is smaller because the world, it seems to me, is vastly different. You can't get on a plane. Our buildings are now all supported and, you know, intentionally designed to withstand that kind of thing. And we also have the whole notion that if we leave troops there, and I just, I think this is so critical, there is a looming civil war between the Taliban, ISIS, and warlords that would put our troops in great danger and pull us back into that war. Uh, right now, ISIS and the Taliban are at each other's throats. And then you have China and Russia, which are adjacent to Afghanistan. They have right. issues with that government. So there's a lot going on in that country. And I don't think the terror threat is the one we faced on 9-11. So what do you think? What do you think about my man, Juan Williams? Uh, you know, we share uh, a lot of uh, similarities in that, you know, we share a lot of political differences. I do not agree with Juan Williams on a lot of things, but, you know, ethnically, we have some we have some similarities. He's got roots in the Caribbean, came through Panama. Same thing with a portion of my family. 
we both have gone behind enemy lines, so to speak, here and, and spoken on, on Fox News. Uh, there's a lot of things that I agree with, I agree with Juan with, but there's a whole lot that I disagree. I want to get your reaction to, to what he said here. Well, one, uh, I missed the part where we rebuilt every building in America after 9-11. <laughs> like, what is he talking about? All of our buildings are now safeguarded against plane attacks? I don't, I don't think we've actually changed everything. I think what he's suggesting is, and I, I got to look at what he's talking about, maybe some new construction is now built to safeguard against the complete collapse of skyscrapers. Okay, that would be, that would be a good change in light of what we saw on 9-11. Um, the other component to this is I think he's overly optimistic about the idea that our enemies are going to be so busy fighting each other uh, that we'll never get. A, 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 he didn't say never, but that the idea would they be too distracted to like meaningfully pose a terror threat to us. I think that is some sort of misguided optimism. I, I don't I don't know how you can just reach that conclusion that, well, ISIS and the Taliban don't like each other, so they'll be dominated by a civil war. So we won't get hit by a terror attack. I'm, I don't really follow the logic there. I will agree with him that like things have definitely changed since 9-11. I, I think that the ability of hijackers in particular to use that form of attack to, uh, to hurt the country, to fly, use a plane as a missile into um, major population centers or into major buildings, that has diminished pretty severely. Uh, one, I think just the cockpit technology, our ability to protect uh, pilots now has changed. The use of um, air marshals, I presume, uh, is going to play a role, especially in the United States, in preventing attacks like that. Um, I've long been a proponent of getting rid of the TSA. I think I think you and I have talked about this. I think the, T, the TSA has demonstrated um, that it is nothing but an impediment to happiness uh, rather than an impediment to terror attacks. Uh, it's like in, in study after study after study that the TSA conducts on its own people. They miss weapons and all sorts of things that they run through the security scanners leading me to ask, why are we going through this? This is kind of like the same conversation we have around COVID. It's like, you know, people can live their life with a certain degree of risk. We do it when we get behind the wheel of a car and I'm perfectly fine doing it, getting into an airplane. Uh, but all of that said, I, you know, I don't really know what the outcome is in Afghanistan. I, I do think that it's going to become something of a safe haven on an operation center for further terrorist activity. Uh, the ability for them to conduct high-profile, devastating attacks, I don't know. Uh, but I do think that Juan decided in that segment to basically take up for the Biden administration and to argue it's sort of a political point. I think he was just basically trying to defend the way we're leaving Afghanistan. Uh, but you've got to be careful when you do that, because I think he reached some wrong conclusions there. Well, I, I, I think you're right. Um, I think Juan is correct that the world is vastly different. And I want to give a shout out to everybody working in TSA. Um, when you're dealing with a bunch of travelers standing in long lines, that is not an, a very easy job. There was a working class people. Uh, and I think that they take a lot of crap, you know, in the media. Oh, they're ineffective, blah, 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 blah. You know, um, and then when TSA starts going on strike, then people get mad at them because their lines get longer. Like, uh, I just, you know, I, I think that the, the people at TSA, I just want to show them a little bit of love because they rarely get love. You know what I mean? Everybody's always angry at TSA. And I think they provide a really important service, particularly post 9-11, in keeping Americans safe. Do some things get through? Sure. Uh, but I think largely they keep Americans 
uh, safe and, and the world safe in many ways. Um, I'll, I'll just say this, um, as far as what Juan is saying, I do think that the world and the way terrorism works and the way terrorism you know, will happen to, you know, in the United States, it's gonna come from domestic terrorists, uh, largely. And a lot of that is gonna be American citizens who get radicalized through the internet. So it's not that the Taliban is gonna, you know, send some, you know, Saudi nationals to go and get on a plane and then fly from Logan into New York City and crash into, you know, the highest building they can find. I don't think that's how it works now. I think what they do or terror networks around the world, when they want to hit the United States, they realize, you know, training a terrorist, you know, in the hills of Afghanistan and then somehow getting him to, to be able to get into the United States or to get into Great Britain is a, is a really difficult task in the way that the world works now, in the way that the world has secured itself. But what is an easy task is radicalizing people through the internet. And we've seen even in the United States with US citizens, with some of our neighbors who are regular people have been radicalized in one way or another. Um, you know, some who are regular church-going Americans, and, and we've seen the results of that. So I think the, the foreign terror networks are using the same playbook, and maybe they revolutionized the playbook of trying to radicalize American citizens here in the United States or permanent residents or others through information, through the internet, and through, uh, you know, social media, that's how they're going to uh, succeed in terror attacks is to have them homegrown and have them people you don't suspect in the United States. And this is if there's one argument for, you know, policing some of the things that we see on the Internet. I think that that's one of the arguments that that, you know, people who are for that and that kind of, you know, so-called censorship are for is you know the the fear that these people get radicalized and then they become dangerous and then they commit acts of terror um so i think the way terrorism works is just different now um so i think you know is he right that there will be conflicts in afghanistan between the taliban and isis k i think there's probably some truth to that um they mm -hmm. have a different worldview isis k wants a, a, you know, caliphate over the entire Islamic world, the, the, entire Muslim, the entire Muslim world that centers in the middle, that's centered in the Middle East. Uh, the Taliban is interested in more local rule. Um, so they had, they literally have a different worldview of what they think an Islamic Republic should look like. Um, so I think they are going to butt heads at times based on that worldview. Uh, and Afghanistan is, you know, always been a country that's just never had cohesive rule within right. its borders. So I, just I think, don't that think that's, that's I just think his point possible. his his point seemed to be suggesting though that a raging civil war would be to America's benefit in terms of keeping us safe. And I just don't see how you can reach that conclusion. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily think that's that's the case. Um, you know, I think a civil war is possible. Is that going to keep Americans safe? No. But again, 
I think he is right that the world has changed in the way terror groups try to make things happen in the United States and Great Britain and in France is different. When you look at the terror attacks uh, inspired by Muslims uh, or so-called Muslims, usually on American soil, it's because they've been radicalized on American soil mm. since 9-11. They have not been radicalized in the Middle East or in, you know, in Eurasia or, or any of those areas. It's literally been in the United States and many of them have been American citizens. So it's been the information war that we have not been able to win in some cases where people have been yeah. radicalized into action. And I think that's the way we need to look at domestic terror in the United States. And that that's goes for white nationalism, that goes for any other kind of terror. But with, with Muslim terror, it's not the it's not like it was 20 years ago. The world has changed yeah. in that regard. And in that respect, I agree with uh with Juan Williams. Isn't it interesting that Juan Williams is, I mean, the arc of Juan Williams's career. I mean, remember at one point he had expressed skepticism of seeing Muslims on airplanes and being nervous. He was just basically conveying a human emotion that he said that, you know, he would get nervous about it. NPR fired him as a result yeah. of those comments. Uh, and, uh, those and were ridiculous then, comments, by the and way. since like, then, yeah, and you could say that, but he was expressing absurd. something that people, that the people legitimately felt, uh, and which, so that's in that way, I don't think that's ridiculous. It's like people, no, you but, know, even they, if they wrongly reached those conclusions, yeah. they would look around and they would feel that way. So he conveyed that emotion and uh, was fired for it. And now he's basically saying, yeah, I don't think that that terror threat is a meaningful one anymore. You know, the funny thing about that, which is so interesting, is has Juan Williams looked at himself in a mirror or Juan Williams looked at his sons, you know, who I know, has he looked at them in the mirror? Does he think that they might be mistaken for people from the Muslim world? <laughs> like, it's it's kind of funny. If you see Juan Williams' son, you would probably think Arab would, would probably be your first guest in, term, in terms of his ethnicity. Really? So, Rafi? Are you talking about Rafi Williams? Yeah, Rafi. You don't think Rafi could pass for someone from the Middle East? I never really thought about it. I don't know. I just yeah, I in my mean, mind's in my mind's eye, no, not really. But I I, I got to look at a picture of him, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, Rafi being a kind of you know a biracial kid, you know, to me he looks like he could totally be someone from the Middle East. And the idea that you would somehow think that you know someone that looks like Rafi is somehow a danger to you, uh, I think is kind of ridiculous. And I think as journalists. You know, I think he he has more of a responsibility, even if that is um, something that he fears. Um, I think you have a responsibility to say, you know, if, if anything, if you're going to say that, put it in context and be like, this is this is a ridiculous, irrational fear that I have, and I need you know to to challenge myself and change it. But don't put it out there like it's a legitimate fear. Um, and I think that's dangerous. That's just like saying. You know, I walk down the street in the inner city. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of black people, or you know, I you know, I walk through Bensonhurst. I'm afraid of Italians. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, I, I think that that is really dangerous thinking. You know, uh, even though real G's do move in silence like colonies, <laughs> so you you know, sometimes uh, you know, Italian American. No, I'm kidding. You know, uh, I think it's ridiculous. Um, well, no, here's what's ridiculous. Of... Here's what's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous to endorse that kind of thinking as a way to triage everything, right? But, you know, I, it's funny now that you and I are like litigating this now. 
all these years later. But the reality is like people do that. They definitely look around. And and by the way, people will do that for the people that they share skin color with. Uh, they'll, They'll make assessments like that. Now, is it right? Is it justified? You know, it's really, it really comes down to that person's experience. You know, how, how well do they know that street that they're walking down? What kind of people should they be on guard for? Um, but I'll, m- my recollection of the Juan Williams scandal was not that he was giving some sort of like blanket endorsement of assessing people on the basis of prejudice. I thought he was just kind of conveying a human emotion. And then NPR became very skittish that he would dare say something that had traversed his brain out loud uh, and they canned him for it. And I, and I remember thinking how unjust that was at the time uh, because I don't remember, I don't, I've never known Juan Williams to be, and I know him a little bit, very nice guy in person. Yeah. very. Um, uh, I've never known him to be like some sort of like prejudiced, you know, bigot. Like he seems like a pretty thoughtful, empathetic person. And, and uh, I think people get really scared around um, third rail topics like the one that he decided to talk about and uh, they decided well, to reject him for it. I think that there is a way to have those discussions. Um, now, I think people do get afraid because some think PC person gets, you know, sees something you said or sees something I said, you know, and they take it out of context. They say, hey, you know, Nichols doesn't like Italian Americans. <laughs> Sorry, I made an Italian accent there. I didn't mean to do that. But <laughs> I couldn't even tell. That's how bad it was. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad. I, I didn't uh, intend for it, but it uh, when I said it, it kind of like I was like, uh-huh. did that sound a little bit? I hope I hope somebody it. writes a piece up about how bad your Italian accent is. Yeah, that would I be can good. actually do a very good Italian accent. I just thought that maybe someone might interpret it as me doing <laughs> like, it. Like, it's me, you're Mario. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I prefer Mario's uh, brother uh-huh. Wario. The yes, Wario. Oh, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He kind of growls it, or you could do yeah. it like they do in Family Guy, where like Peter Griffin is just like bobbity boobity boobity bobbity. I thought he face. did that for Portuguese people. Was that was that Italian or was I thought Portuguese? it was Italian. It might be both. Yeah, I, I so I think um, and all those cartoons do a black scent, which is like, oh, God, that's really bad. Um, but. You know, my, my point being that, <laughs> you know, there, there are people who will take things out of context. Um, again, it's been so long that I don't even remember the context for that. But if he didn't discuss that in the right way, uh, if they canned him and they took his words out of context, that's one thing. But, you know, NPR should be a, in particular, if he said that on Fox, I think they, you know, no one would give him that hard a time. But he said it on NPR. That's not the space for that kind of editorializing. And I think if he did not put it in the proper context, I can see them being very upset by it. And I think it is not, it, or it shouldn't be a human emotion to look at somebody's skin color or their appearance and say, wow, that person is dangerous. You know what I mean? Um, it, you know, you can look at their behavior if they're looking skittish and they, you know, and they have a box cutter in their hand, then I might be like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried about that guy. And it doesn't matter if he's brown or if he's white or if he's black, you know, um, I might be, da- you know, that guy could be dangerous. But to just say blanket, I'm afraid when I'm in an airport and I see, you know, uh, an Arab person, I-, I think is, unless he, you know, noted how stupid an emotion that is, um, I think it's troubling, but, uh, we'll see if you think this other clip is troubling and it comes from Jake Sullivan. 
And, you know, obviously he is, he is discussing uh, Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, in, a clo- in particular, the closing of, of Bagram Airport and focusing primarily on Kabul. Now, many people are saying that that was a strategic mistake. Uh, I know that you are one of them, but I want to see if you can buy what it is that Jake Sullivan is selling here. Let's take a listen. They concluded, the military, that Bagram was not much value added, that it was much wiser to focus on Kabul. And so I followed that recommendation. But the generals gave that recommendation after President Biden earlier this spring had overruled their recommendation that he keep at least 2,500 troops on the ground. My question is, instead of laying this off on the generals, shouldn't the commander in chief take full responsibility, given that they had to make a decision on Bagram based on the conditions that he set for them? Chris, you've heard the president take ultimate responsibility for every decision he's made as commander in chief. He has expressly said the buck stops with him. But let's be real about Bagram. There is a difference between tactical advice from the commanders on the ground. What is the right operational method of executing a drawdown? And on that, he placed great weight on the advice of the people in the field and the strategic decision to continue a war into its third decade with American troops fighting and dying in a civil war in another country. On the strategic decision, that's a decision only a president can make. On the tactical decision of which is the right airport to have for an evacuation, of course, any responsible president would give significant weight to the advice of the commanders on the ground, and their advice was to close Bagram and focus on Kabul. What do you think? Well, I think he's spinning his ass off. <laughs> uh, this, so what you've got is Jake Sullivan trying to represent uh, what the president has been saying about um, why they closed Bagram. And this came after you had Joe Biden in a press conference last week. He was asked about this and he said, oh, I, I asked the generals and the generals all said, yeah, go ahead, close Bagram. Kabul's the place mm-hmm. to do this, uh, this uh, departure. Chris Wallace rightly pointed out at the top of that questioning that the only reason that he would have gotten advice that sounded like that is because he had already committed them to bringing the troop levels down to such low levels that it would be impossible to hold two locations. So it's like saying, okay, we're going to get rid of all the guards throughout the house and we're going to leave one guy with one handgun in the house. Which room should he stay in? You know, it's like it's like, OK, uh, well, I guess I guess the room by the door. I, that's like so they were left with um, this very narrow range of options. Now, I have no idea what the generals were saying behind the scenes. I don't know if how many. Wait, I, didn't Mark Milley say it publicly that he thought that they didn't? He need did. Barbara? He did. But the condition for that, according to Chris Wallace and other reporting, is that this was a foregone conclusion because Biden had already said, yeah, I'm, we're diminishing the troop levels to such low figures that that's basically all the troops I'm giving you. Now, how do you do it? And so so Millie, not to defend Millie, because I think Millie's been a disaster, but Millie goes before Congress and says, yep, we don't need Bagram for this strategy. We just need Kabul. And of course, now what we're looking at is uh, a lot of you know people wishing throughout through in the government and, and outside of it that we had kept Bagram, that we had kept such a strategically important airfield that's got 
many more runways, a lot more runway space, a lot more capacity. It's just 40 miles away from Kabul. Uh, it has all of these strategic advantages. It was the crown jewel of American bases in uh, Afghanistan. Um, and we just abandoned it in the middle of the night. And that is looking very stupid in retrospect. So I, Jake Sullivan is just spinning. That's it. I mean, that's, he's, he's trying to, you know, what's the phrase, put lipstick on a pig. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what he did with Chris Wallace. Yeah, I don't know that that that's qualifies as spinning. You know, spinning is, you know, uh, what we saw from, you know, some officials in the last administration, particularly like Kellyanne Conway, when they're like, well, the, the president offered alternative facts. And, you know, uh, I, I don't see that as spinning. Uh, I think the president, first of all, was asked a question. Why did you make this decision? He made this decision because the generals advised him that Kabul would be the, the best place to do this, um, this uh, exit. And he made that decision based on that. Um, and I think Jake Sullivan is basically breaking that down. And Jake Sullivan is saying, you know, the president has also taken responsibilities for what's gone wrong. I think that's also true. That's not spinning. That's kind of just saying what happened now but the centerpiece uh, now the centerpiece again, of that is the centerpiece of that decision though that advice again is I, that it came at the hands of biden's prior decision which is bring the troops down to a level that you could only secure one location sure i mean it, you know if, if you want to talk about all of the the elements that went into it i think you know in a press conference he was just essentially saying uh you know the president that is that that was the advice that was given him based on the circumstances that they had there in Afghanistan. And yes, he wanted to draw down the amount of troops there because he wanted to end a war. So I, I don't see, you know, anything particularly wrong about that. And I think people are Monday morning quarterbacking some of this. Of course, you know, Bagram probably would have been a good asset to keep. And, you know, keeping troops there, you know, at Bagram now in retrospect would have been better but again, when we talk about all of this, we can't talk about the exit without talking about the war itself and the beginnings of the war. And I, I would say that this has been a 20-year disaster, not a you know 20-day disaster the way many people who are looking to score political points are trying to make it seem. It's been a 20-year disaster all the way around. You know, thousands upon thousands of Afghans dead. Yep. Uh, billions or trillions of dollars wasted. Um, and what has been the result? Where do we get out of it? You know, and now, you know, if you want to argue that these terror groups could come back, they probably could, you know, um, I don't know if they're going to reach the United States in the same way. I, I think I said that earlier, but, you know, these terror groups may gain strength in that region. Um, there is going to be instability. There is, it is going to be difficult for women uh now so maybe you gave them a 20-year reprieve if that you know makes you feel better and sleep at night then fine but i think over the last uh 20 years there's been strategic mistake after strategic mistake a lot of lies you know, a lot of lies a lot mm -hmm. a lot of issues that we've seen over these years uh you know and the start of this war now i mean it seemed like at the time it was like you know barbara lee was the only person saying whoa 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 you know, hold on a second. Um, and Democrats mocked her. Uh, Republicans certainly mocked her. 
and now she's looking like a, a wise old sage because she was saying, hey, wait a minute, let's look at this holistically before we start jumping in emotionally. And, you know, we were looking for uh, the heads of that terror network at Al Qaeda, mm -hmm. uh, namely Osama bin Laden. And we found them with like 12 guys, you know, and killed them with 12 guys. Did we need all of this in order to make that happen, in order to reach our strategic goal, which actually was in the interest of the defense of the United States of America? Um, we didn't need this war. And again, to just focus on the exit, I think is so short-sighted. And that's what frustrates me about the entire discourse surrounding uh, this exit is that we're acting like it was 20 days instead of 20 years. Well, it's and only Biden, because Biden is responsible going back because he yeah. voted for it, you know, in the beginning, yeah. you know, he supported it after they killed OBL and he was the last one in the room. You can't blame him. It was eventually, you know, it was essentially Obama's decision. But after they killed OBL, they could have started to pull out then or, or finished the pull out then saying, hey, we have reached our objective. Instead, they surge and they do the exact opposite, right? You know, of all those things. So these are—it's perfectly good conversation. You and I have had it several times, whether or not to stay or go. And I think you know, broadly, up until now, public polling up until the actual exit was very supportive of leaving. Some of it's broken down now on partisan uh, uh, senses. Like more Republicans think that we should stay in Afghanistan now, but that's just—that's a purely partisan reaction to the moment. But. Um, but that whole conversation, whether we stay or whether we go, that's where Joe Biden and his administration wants the conversation to be. Biden keeps on coming out and saying, well, what were my choices, stay or go? That is not what this current moment, this current ongoing crisis is about. It's how we are leaving. It is not whether we should go, it is how. And um, we're not even done with it. We have Americans and allies in harm's way at this moment. So it makes a lot of sense that we do have this debate about this specific exit and what is going wrong and what can be fixed and how we can get out. That's all perfectly good. But I agree with you on the, on the broader point that we are looking at 20 years of lies from the federal government. And we're looking at a mission that grew completely out of control without an, without an unclear um, mission priority. Uh, without a clear mission priority. And so as a result, um, we were left with sort of a sprawling disaster that was misrepresented to the American public over and over and over again. And for that, so many people should be held accountable. Uh, and unfortunately, in the way, the way Washington works, so few frequently are. Um, but uh, I agree with you on that point. I, I'm disappointed in both. The amount of time we stayed there, the unclear mission in Afghanistan, the failure to, to understand that the mission was to kill Al-Qaeda and make consequences for people who hurt us to kill Osama bin Laden and to get out. Um, and then now this this exit, which has been something of a, I guess you could say it's a slow rolling disaster. It's been pretty rapid. There's been a lot of disasters built into this. Uh, and I'm, I'm praying, I tr fervently praying uh, that we don't lose any more troops here, that we can get American citizens and Afghan allies out and uh, call it a day and come back to figure out um, ways in the future to prevent terror attacks from proliferating from Afghanistan and represent America's interests um, uh, for as long as we possibly can. Yeah, I, again, uh, I agree with you 100%. Um, there have been failures during this exit, but one of the things that I would say is, you know, I think it's short-sighted to Monday morning quarterback, the exit, uh, what produced the exit was the war. 
And so um, I think it's important for us to get out, focus on American interests, uh, allow people to change their own governments and change their own situations. I think trying to play big brother has never worked for the United States. Uh, there are times where we have intervened and I think intervention is different than regime change, but uh, where I think there are certain distinctions there. Um, but, you know, other than World War II, you know, since then, every time we've tried to intervene because of our military strength, uh, we don't win wars. We actually lose them and the exit looks really bad. Um, I can't think of a time where the exit has actually looked good, where we've left and everything is great and the people are better for it. Um, a lot of times, you know, it's just as bad as when we went in. And now you're seeing, you know, it's the 20 year hiatus for the for the Taliban, but they're right back uh, just where they were at the very beginning. And women are going to have the same struggles and all of the progress that's been made. You know, all it was was a was a brief uh, break from uh, the things that are going to happen uh, here for mm. um, Thank you, Vince, for having this really yes. cool discussion. Um, thank our producers for those clips. And I would like to thank you guys for watching. Hopefully, you know, you guys will have ideas about how we can save the nation, not just argue with us, but actually have some ideas of how we can move forward as a country, not just look back. And one way you can look forward is to press the like button, press the subscribe button and check us out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoon, evening. Uh, we're going to come with fresh new content, awesome interviews. You can like, subscribe, watch us on the Daily Caller YouTube or anywhere a podcast is found or on Facebook Watch. We're in all of those places to bring this information and these discussions to you. Thank you so much. Peace out.